0: You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Please turn with me your Bibles to John's Gospel, Chapter 6. We're going to be having Lord's Supper tonight, and I thought it would be good for us to talk a wee bit about What is the Lord's Supper? What do we do? I think sometimes people get into a service and go, okay, now what? You know, it's quiet, and what do you do, and what's going on, and, and, and so forth. And lots of strange things can go through your minds. I remember when I was a kid... I used to think you had to hold the bread in your mouth until you got the wine because it's the body and blood of Christ, and so it had to be together. And so I had my own little strange idea of what was going on. Hopefully you don't have that kind of a strange idea, but (laughs) we all have strange things. And so I want us to look briefly at a passage that is difficult um, and which probably fits in our theology very difficultly. Uh, but I think it's one that we need to understand and apply it to the Lord's Supper. So John chapter 6, starting at verse 43, down through um, verse 58. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. It's on page uh, 1071, if you're using the, the Bibles from the back. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you can eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is the bread that, comes, that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. So ends the reading of God's word. <clears throat> As I said, we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. And you have to ask, what is it about? We're going to be partaking of it. We do this once a month in this congregation But why do we do it? Is it just something we do? What's going on? What's the purpose of this? Do we get any benefit from it? Not in a selfish or pragmatic way, but spiritually as we take part. And above all, how are we supposed to do this? How are we to observe the Lord's Supper? What are we supposed to do when the elements are being passed out and what's going on? Well, we'll be looking at this passage in John, but before we do look at that passage, I want us to consider three categories of people, all of which, or all of whom, need to eat. You have healthy people. We all need to eat to remain healthy. If you stop eating, you're going to get unhealthy. And so it's not just sick people or people that you know have been on a starvation diet or something. All of us. Even healthy people need to eat. You Consider the second category is people who are ill or weak. They need sustenance to strengthen their bodies, to keep going. And they need to to eat something. Even sick people need to have at least some soup or something to keep them going. And then the final category is those people who have been working hard. I think of David Miller. He's not here this evening. I don't see him. Um building his stone walls, you know, if you're laboring at something like that all day long, you need to eat, otherwise you're going to get weak and, and so forth. Or even people who have IT jobs. If you don't eat, you're not going to be able to concentrate. You'll lose focus. And even more pointedly, what about people that are in a battle? They need to eat, otherwise they're going to die. All of these kind of people need to eat to sustain themselves, And really, that's what I want us to focus on when we think about the Lord's Supper. It's a meal. It's a symbolic meal. And it's there to sustain us spiritually. All right, And we'll we'll look at that as we go through the passage. But none of these kind of people, these categories of people, could continue living without food. They all need it on a regular basis, not once in a while. I don't know many of you that would say, okay, I'll eat once a week. That's good enough, (laughs) you know. Especially me. I don't. You know, that would not work well. <laughs> okay? We need food, and we need it on a regular basis. And the point that Jesus is making about the Lord's Supper, I believe, in this passage, is that the same thing is true with regard to our spiritual lives as well. We need sustenance. Where are we going to get that? Well, we have the Word of God. That is the bread of life in a certain sense, but also the Lord's Supper is meant to sustain us spiritually. So as we look at some questions regarding the Lord's Supper, the first is, why do we observe it? Is it simply a nice thing, or maybe you think of it as a strange thing that Christians do? You know, we just, this is what we do as as Christians. Hopefully you have a better idea about why we do it than that. Or that it's just tradition. We've always done that, you know. That's the the way we do things in the church. And really, it's neither of those. It's the fact that we are commanded in Scripture by the Lord Himself to do this. This was something He instituted. He thought it was something we needed. And so we need to understand that. And you can look at Matthew chapter 26 and the other parallel expressions in the other Gospels. Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, hopefully a familiar passage. And basically the same thing is said in Mark 14 and in Luke 22. Paul repeats basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, which we'll be reading as the words of institution later on. So we need to see, first of all, that we do this not because the free church does that or we as Christians just do this. We do this because Jesus instituted this, that Jesus said this is something we are to do in remembrance of him. But now, what is the Lord's Supper? First of all, what it's not. It is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. I'm not going to go up here and and say a few words, and then all of a sudden I will re-sacrifice Christ for you. I'm not going to turn the, the wine into blood and the bread into flesh, either, that you eat flesh and blood, literally. It's not that but neither is it just something that we jog our, our memories and think oh yeah jesus died for me that's a nice thing okay it's more than that when we read this passage jesus is saying you better you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood what's going on with that and so it's more than just oh yeah jesus died on calvary he did amazing work there it's much more than that so let's look at this passage in john chapter 6. And if you look at this passage, you need to see it in its context. Chapter 1 of John establishes the deity of Christ. The Word has become flesh, and there's a word that John will pick up on in our passage. Chapter 2 describes the outset of Jesus' ministry and the miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding in Galilee. Chapter 3 sets out his meeting with Nicodemus where he talks about the requirement of being born again, born from above. And in this passage, he talks a lot about the bread that has come down from heaven. In chapter 4, it records Jesus' encounter with a woman at the well in Samaria and the resulting faith of many in that city. Chapter 5, and John finds Jesus back in Jerusalem at the feast where he heals the lame man at Bethsaida, on the Sabbath, thus incurring the wrath of the Jews who want to begin to plan to kill him for violating the Sabbath, but also because of his claim that God was his father and that he was equal with God. And then in chapter 6, it begins with the feeding of the 5,000. And so we pick up on this theme of eating, bread, loaves, and the word that's used there is the same word for bread. And this tremendous miracle, 5,000 are fed and there's mounds of food left over. And the people are happy. Why are they happy? Because Jesus is a wonderful Messiah that he's come to redeem them. No, their bellies are full. The disciples leave, then Jesus leaves later and he has to walk on water. In the letter, in verses 15 to 25, to get back to Capernaum. When he gets there, the people go, how did you get here? And they're seeking him. But he says to them, you're seeking me not because even of the miracles, the signs that I did, but because you ate and were full. And so the whole context here is about eating and being fed and feeding on things. In verses 30 to 35, it describes how the Jews demand a sign of Jesus to verify his claim. And then they brag, they brag to Jesus that their fathers ate manna in the wilderness, the bread that comes down from heaven. And they cite Psalm 78, verse 24, and Exodus 16, 4. They call that manna the bread of heaven. And then Jesus just is going to pick up on that. This thing says, wait, I'm the bread of heaven. This is the real bread you need to eat. Not that manna stuff, as amazing as that was. But the Jews were bragging about that. And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses that gave the bread from heaven, but the Father, who, in a veiled reference to himself, gives the true bread from heaven and gives life to the world. Then immediately preceding our passage, in John six thirty-six to 40 it records Jesus' explicit statement that he is the bread of life, and that will be repeated in our passage this evening. Then continuing with that metaphor of eating and drinking, he says that the one who comes to him will never hunger, and the one who believes in him will never thirst. Paralleling coming to him with believing to him. Jesus says that while they have seen him, they didn't believe. It's a theme in John's gospel. He's he's pushing people to believe in Jesus Christ. And all those who the Father has given to Christ, he says, will come to him. And in a reference to the fact that he is the bread of life sent by the Father from heaven, he says that he has come down from heaven. He goes on to explain that none of those given to the Son by the Father would be lost and that he would raise them up on the last day, a phrase which is going to be repeated again in our passage. So Jesus is building as we move through this, it's not just all of a sudden he introduces a new theme in the verses. And then in verses 41 and 42, we see the Jews grumbling or murmuring about Jesus' statement that he's the bread that comes down from heaven. And interestingly, the word that's used here is the same Greek word that's used to translate the murmuring of the people of God in the wilderness. Here we see the Jews murmuring yet again. And they say, wait a minute, this is Joseph's son. We know this guy. How can he give us, how can he have come down from heaven and, and do these things? And so the stage is set now with the Jews grumbling, the people looking to be fed, and Jesus explaining that he's the bread of life and what that entails. So as we look at this passage, verses 43 through 58, I want to divide it into four sections. First of all, the foundation in verses 43 to 46 Then the key verse, I think, is verse 47. And then there's an analogy with manna again in verses 48 to 52. And then Christ stresses feeding on him in verses 53 to 58. But before we begin to look at this passage, I have to give a disclaimer kind of a thing. I want you to look at verse 60 of this chapter. This is the reaction of the disciples after they hear all this that Jesus says, okay? It says, on hearing it, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. (laughs) Who can accept it? In other words, if you have difficulty tonight processing all of this, you're in good company. The disciples didn't really get it all the first time around either. It's a hard passage that Jesus is talking about here. And so you need to understand that as we go in. Plus, there's many other passages in the New Testament, particularly that, that talk about the Lord's Supper, and we're not going to be able to say everything there is about it. So now let's look at the foundation, verses 43 to 46. First of all, in verse 43, Jesus responds to the grumbling of the Jews about what he had said about himself, and he just tells them to stop grumbling. He puts them to rest. We get down to verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus here lays a very solid foundation for what he's about to say in the latter verses of this passage. This foundation consists of the fact that no one is able to come to him, Jesus, unless the Father who sent Christ draws him. And here, coming to Christ is the same as believing in Him. The point is that no one can save themselves. The Father must draw you to Christ if you're to be saved. And the word that's used here for drawing signifies being attracted to, being drawn. He's not saying the Father is going to drag you to Him kicking and screaming, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this. The Father woos us. He draws us through inward persuasion. This is an expression of God's gracious action to woo us, win us over to Christ, something that we would never do on our own. But Jesus is saying here, you have to be drawn to him by the Father. And Christ makes a point not only here, but over and over again in John's gospel, that he was sent by the Father. The expression, sent me, occurs in verse uh, 34. And he has come at the Father's request to do the Father's bidding. And we see it over and over again. Jesus makes a big deal about that. He says, if I speak my own words, don't listen. He's there to represent the Father. The Father sent him. He's God's representative. And then he adds that those who come to him, he will raise up on the last day. Now when you know this, what this passage is about, you go, why is he saying that? Why is he talking about the last day? And then he starts talking about his flesh and his blood and you have to eat it and all these other things. What's going on here? This expression is repeated here And then also in verses 39 and 40, and then again in verse 54. And it refers to the final judgment and the restoration of all things. And it's intended as a statement of hope and of security. When the final judgment comes, Christ will raise those up who have trusted in him. He'll raise them up to eternal life. When Jesus restores all things, those who have put their faith in him will be there to enter into that new heaven and the new earth. So he's giving them hope. And Jesus is here moving away from the immediate and into the future, into the restoration. And in so doing, he's urging us to faith. It's not the immediate, what I can see, what I can eat, hear. He's drawing our attention to the future on the last day when he restores all things. Then he will raise us up. So that requires faith, and that which we cannot see, that which is yet to come. He's urging us to trust in him, which is the theme of this passage, faith in Christ and what he will do as opposed to what we think we can or should do ourselves. And as we consider Jesus' words here, knowing what he's going to talk about, eating, eating, his flesh, drinking his blood, we need to kind of keep in the back of our minds, why is he talking about last days and being raised up and all of these other things? Why talk about our inability to come to him unless the Father draws us? Why mention that at all? Why does he do that? Jesus doesn't do things haphazardly, so why is he saying those things? How does that serve as a foundation for what he'll say later? In verse 45, he builds on that foundation and he turns to the scriptures of the Old Testament, particularly the first portion of Isaiah 54 verse 13, which he quotes here. David's been going through Isaiah, the suffering servant songs there in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 is all about the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, who bore the punishment we deserved. It's a picture of of how Jesus would take the place of his people and atone for their sins on the cross. But when you get to chapter 54 of Isaiah, it's a picture of the restoration that results or flows out of what the suffering servant has done. David's been talking about that. It's a picture of total restoration. And in verse 13, which speaks of all God's people being taught by the Lord, the one who never changes, the Lord, Yahweh, The one who is always the same, who keeps covenant forever. The great I am. God himself revealing himself to his people, teaching them in this restoration. And again, this is foundational for what Jesus is going to be saying about eating his flesh, drinking his blood. Move on to verse 46. It says, No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. So following on, immediately on this quotation from Isaiah 54, verse 13, Jesus states that no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. The clear, there's a clear threefold implication here in what he says. First of all, he's talking about himself. He's the one who has seen the Father. He's been with the Father since before the foundation of the world throughout all eternity, he is the one who has seen God. Secondly, he is the one who will, according to Isaiah 54, 13, reveal the Father to us. The one, one of Jesus' primary tasks in coming was to reveal the Father to us. John 14, 9 says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's why he's there. Want to know who God is, what he's like? Jesus says, look at me. I am God. So we see who God is through Jesus. And so the fulfillment of Isaiah comes in what Jesus does in revealing the Father. And thirdly, he is thus making himself equal with God. He is claiming to be the great I Am, Yahweh, God himself. Once again, this is a strong evidence of God's amazing grace. Jesus has come that we might learn who the Father is and what he's like. Jesus himself, in John 17, verse 3, says that to know not only him but the Father is life eternal. So he's revealing this, not just so that we would have some intellectual facts about God. It's so that we would know life eternal. So when Jesus speaks of his revealing function here, it has to do with our salvation. Unless Jesus reveals the Father to us, we cannot be saved just as unless the father draws us to christ we won't come to him do you see the mutual relationship between the father and the son the father has to draw us to christ and christ has to reveal the father to us to be saved they go hand in hand this is all of grace this is the foundation of what he's going to say later on there's nothing here about what we do don't do how we're supposed to feel it's all what god does okay you need to understand that as we move through this Then we come to the key verse, I think, in verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. This is the key to understanding or unlocking the meaning of this passage. Here, plain and simple, in plain and simple language, Jesus tells us that the focus of this passage is on faith, faith in him. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Jesus here urging us to believe so that we might receive eternal life. But what's that mean? What is faith? Basically, faith is trust. Trust that God is going to do what he says he will do. What he has said he would and has promised to do. Namely, here, grant eternal life for those who put their trust in Christ, in the finished work of Christ. Faith is our response to God's faithfulness. Throughout the Scriptures, we see God over and over and over and over again doing exactly what he said he would. Many times, most times, in spite of or over against the rebellion of his people, he keeps covenant again and again and again. He never changes. He always does what he says. And it's because that's true we can respond by trusting him. We know he'll do what he's promised to do. That's what faith is. It's saying, yeah, God, you are going to do what you've said to do. And if we put our trust in Christ that he will give us eternal life, that's what faith is. We see it most clearly in Christ. We see God doing exactly what he said he would in christ god reveals himself as the one who punishes sin and as the one who provides the atoning sacrifice for those sins in order to restore his people we see him as the one who redeems his people from their sins in christ we see god as both just and holy and as the one who justifies those who have faith in christ The word that's used here for faith indicates an active, ongoing, not merely a one-off matter done in the past. You know, I believed in Jesus way back. No, this is faith that's ongoing. It's the one who continues to believe in Jesus. That's the one who will have eternal life. These people have eternal life. Not will have, sometime way off in the future, but have it now. For them, eternal life is a present reality. Why? Because they have Jesus, who is the bread of life. The reason for that is faith unites us to Christ, and in Him and in Him alone, we have eternal life. Eternal life is life that will never end, Life that comes through our union with Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It is life as God intended before the fall. Life restored to fellowship with the Creator. That's what Jesus is talking about. But it's all about faith in Him and what He does. Then He talks about an analogy in verses 48 to 52. He starts off simply by saying, I'm the bread of life. This expression occurs here and in verse 35. And a similar expression is found in verse 51. It is clearly metaphorical language. This metaphorical language indicates that this is not to be taken literally. Jesus is not saying that he is a loaf of bread that somehow come alive. That would be ridiculous. We know that. But keep that in mind. He's using metaphorical language here. So when he's talking about eating my flesh, drinking my blood, don't think, oh, we've got to do some miracle and change these elements here and then actually become cannibals. That's not what he's doing. He's using metaphorical language. What Jesus is saying here is that he is the source of life, real life. He is the bread which gives life, that makes life possible. The way this is expressed is very reminiscent of the language found in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and declared, I am that I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent you. Here Jesus says, I am the bread of life, indicating that he, as the I am, the one who never changes, who is always present, is the sole source of life. There are several other places in John's Gospel where Jesus uses similar language, and in each case, it's a declaration of some aspect of his nature, but it's also clearly a statement of his deity. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the gate, I am the light of the world, he's saying, I'm Yahweh, I am God Almighty, and these are various aspects of that. Jesus is also here suggesting that we feed on him spiritually just as we feed on bread physically. We need to feed on him for our spiritual life, just as we need food to sustain our physical existence. Now just stop and think of all the substitutes that people seek for life. Things they do to find life or meaning or whatever they want to call it. Think about all the things you do that are substitutes for Jesus, the real bread of life. Jesus alone is the true source of life as the Creator intended it. It is only in Him when we're united to Him in faith and having union and communion with the Father that we can know what life is really like. In verse 49, he continues this analogy and he says, Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. Jesus builds on the, cor- the correlation suggested by the reference to bread in the previous verse, and he turns to the manna analogy. Manna was God's miraculous provision to sustain his people physically while they were on the way to the promised land. Literally, manna means, what is this? <laughs> they didn't even know what it was. It was some supernatural food that came down out of heaven. And they would collect it. It was a miracle. And they ate it. But Jesus is making the point here, they all ate it, but they all died. (laughs) It was spectacular, but it didn't sustain life. And so he's going to contrast that manna which the Jews prized. Oh, our fathers ate the manna. And Jesus saying, yeah, but they all died. (laughs) I'm the bread of life. You eat of me, and you'll never die. So there's this stark contrast. Amazing as manna was, all of those who took of it died. It did not give or sustain life forever. It certainly didn't give eternal life. And that's the point of this analogy. Manna was remarkable, but it could not give eternal life. Only faith in Christ results in eternal life. That we saw in verse 47. And just by way of anticipation of what lies ahead, we can say here that if this supernatural food, manna, could not grant eternal life, then eating bread and drinking wine in the Lord's Supper is not going to give you eternal life. So don't think that as you take the Lord's Supper. Oh, if I do this, I'll have eternal life. No. Verse 47, he who believes has ter- eternal life. You need to trust in Christ. Then verse 50, he turns back to himself, he says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. On the one hand, there's manna, supernatural yet physical, kind of bread which came down from heaven, and yet those who ate of it died. On the other hand, there's this other bread that comes down from heaven as well. But those who eat of that bread will not die. Although both of these kinds of bread come down from heaven, that is, have God as their source and are supernatural, the contrast is between physical bread, which if you eat, you die, And spiritual bread. That's the point that Jesus is making. In verse 51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Jesus identifies himself as the spiritual bread of his people. He says that he is the living bread which came down from heaven. Again, he's using metaphorical language. He's not saying here that he's a loaf of bread that fell out of the sky. That somehow keeps you alive. He's saying that he's the source of life, as the bread that gives life, eternal life. We see that from the fact that he says that whoever eats of this bread, that is Jesus himself, will live forever. But then Jesus focuses the metaphor a bit and adds a somewhat shocking and unexpected declaration. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. There's two things we need to note about what he says there. First of all, Jesus is referring to his flesh, his physical body. He is not making reference to some spiritual aspect of his nature but rather the fact that He has taken on our human nature and become flesh, like is reported in John 1. The emphasis is on His physical body. He's talking about Him going to the cross, physically dying. Secondly, Jesus is here highlighting the fact that it is His flesh given for the life of the world. Here He is drawing our attention to His sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus is revealing here that the main purpose for which he has come, come down from heaven, is to die on behalf of his people. He came to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, verse 28. As the good shepherd, he came to lay down his life for the sheep. John 10, verse 11. Whereas Paul says in Galatians 1 3, he gave himself for our sin to rescue us from the present evil age. Or over in 1 Timothy... Chapter 2, verse 5, it says that as the sole mediator between God and man, he gave himself as a ransom for all. What Jesus is saying is, I'm going to give my flesh so that you can have life. I'm going to die. The point that he's making here is that he has come to die. But his death, his flesh, will be the bread which gives life to his people. He's tying together his death on the cross with the reception of eternal life. And the connection is that it is those who partake of his sacrificial, his sacrificed flesh to whom eternal life will be granted. Here we need to remember the clear statement made back in verse 47, that it is those who believe who have eternal life. We must also recall that Jesus is using metaphorical language. He is not urging us to eat physical flesh, nor is he saying that spiritual eating, to which he is referring, will magically, apart from faith, secure eternal life for us. Faith is essential. But it is faith that is tied not only to his death in some vague manner, but faith which enables us to eat his flesh. And in verses 53 to 58, he'll explain what that means. Verse 52, we have the Jews grumbling yet again. <laughs> they argue amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're looking at him, they're going, wait a minute, how does that work? First of all, it's a revolting thought if, if he would actually literally do that. But secondly, how, do you, how does that work? If, if he gives flesh of himself, he's already dead. How does then he give people? So they're saying, that this can't work. And so they're, they're, they're thinking of it in terms of literal meaning, and they're completely confused, and they start arguing amongst themselves. So then Jesus speaks again and clears the air. And he talks now in the last part of this passage about feeding on himself. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Verily, verily, I say to you, or truly, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. How does that fit into your theology? How often do you think about that on a day-to-day basis? Mm, eating Christ's flesh, drinking his blood. That's the only way we have life, is what he says. How does that work? In this last section of the passage we're looking at, Jesus does two things. He explains what he means, but he also accentuates the necessity of feeding on him. If we are to have eternal life, he drives home the truth that faith that he spoke of in verse 47 is a faith that is focused on feeding on him. Verse 53 begins with a phrase which literally is, amen, amen, I say to you. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word for truth. This is truly what is to be. It's vital to understand what Jesus is saying here. And so he stresses what he's doing. And there's a double negative here. If you do not, which is translated unless, you you have no. Jesus uses a negative conditional clause here. What's that mean? He states a condition without which the desired result cannot be obtained. The condition is eating his flesh, the flesh of the Son of Man, and drinking his blood, which Jesus will not only repeat but also explained in the following verses. So just hold on to your questions about what's that mean. And Jesus here expands the metaphor that he's been using. It now includes not only his flesh, but his blood as well. Not only eating, but drinking too. And with the expansion of the metaphor, he is suggesting a, completed, a complete meal, eating and drinking. So he's expanding the metaphor to talk about a meal. The point he's making is that life, eternal life, is in some sense tied to eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Eternal life is not independent of partaking of the blood and body of Christ. It's significant that Jesus here refers to himself as the son of man. We just don't have time to see how Ezekiel uses that and and how Daniel uses that. But every time it's used in the Gospel of John, it's referring to Jesus as the exalted Messiah. To whom all authority has been given. So Jesus is here speaking about both his suffering, his flesh and blood, and his exaltation as the Son of Man. He's talking about both his death and his glorification. It is the flesh and blood of the exalted and ascended Messiah that is the focus, not merely the focus on Christ dying on the cross. This is the Son of Man who is seated at God's right hand. It's his flesh that we're to eat, his blood that we're to drink. Verse 54, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Here Jesus expresses the matter in a more positive way. We also need to note that here, need to note here that verse fifty six is very much parallel to this verse fifty four, and I'll say more about that when we get there. But first, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to look at some of the technical terms that are used here. The expression "whoever" is singular and would be better translated "the one who." Also the verbs, eat my flesh, drink my blood, are ongoing, continual action. The picture that we are given here is of sustained or persistent eating and drinking, not a one-off festive occasion, occasional matter. This is habitual feeding on Christ that he's talking about. We've already seen from verse 53 that if we do not eat Christ's flesh and drink His blood, we do not have life. And here, the not having life is expressed positively as being raised up on the last day. The expression occurred back up in verse 44, where we noted that it refers to the final judgment and restoration of all things. It's used here in another way of saying life. If we drink His blood and eat His flesh, we have life in the fullest possible sense. The point is, here is quite simple. The one who eats Christ's flesh and drinks his blood will be raised up to eternal life and fellowship with Christ. Then Jesus in verse 55 begins to explain what he means by his flesh and blood. The word real that's used here in the NIV really means true or genuine. This is real food, not food that you eat and then will die. This is food that will sustain you to eternal life. Interestingly, Jesus does not use the the word bread here, but food. And the word that he uses refers not only to that which you do eat, but to the eating itself, to the process of consuming food, of feeding, of partaking of food. And the word that he uses for drink is the same thing. It's what you drink, but it's also the drinking. So it's this ongoing activity, eating and drinking of Him, ongoing, not just once in a while. We get to verse 56. The first part of this verse is word for word the same as what was found in verse 54, drawing a clear parallel. Eating and drinking are, just in case it has slipped your mind, ongoing, habitual, sustained actions. Here in the place of what we had in verse 54, in place of eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, here Jesus says that he remains in me and I in them. There's a parallel construction here. He intends us to understand the two phrases to mean the same thing. In other words, to have eternal life and be raised up at the last day is equal to remaining in Christ and him in us think about that. Is that how you view eternal life, remaining in Christ and he in you? Or is it something that's going to happen when you die and you get to heaven and then's when eternal life? What Jesus is saying here is eternal life is for him to live in us, for us to be united to him now and us in him. The word Jesus uses here for remain conveys the sense of continuing to exist to persist, to live. He's saying, do you live in me? That's what remaining in Christ is. This eating and drinking that Jesus has in mind here is inseparably tied together with remaining in him and he in us. It's a picture of a meal, of a fellowship, of communion, being at home where we live in Christ moment by moment we have to note the mutual relationship here it's not only that we are to remain in christ and then we get to start thinking okay what do i have to do to remain in christ no we remain in him and he remains in us this is amazing stop and think about that us remaining in christ and he in us that's what eternal life is but we have to go back to verse 47 The key, and recall that it is those who believe who have eternal life. Faith is essential here. The point is that this feeding on Christ is an expression of us remaining in Him and He in us. It is tied to an ongoing relationship, to our union and communion with Christ, which comes only through faith. Then, verse 57. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus uses an analogy between himself and the Father. He says, I live because I'm in relationship with the Father. You'll live when you're in relationship with me. That's the bottom line of this verse. So the whole idea of feeding on him has to do with this union with Christ. And then finally, verse 58 This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate the manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Continues this analogy with the manna. And it's basically a repetition of verse 51. He's using this metaphor of the necessity of eating him to have eternal life. To stress that we must be united to him. Such that he is in us and we are in him. And that takes place through faith in Him and faith alone. Through complete, ongoing reliance on Him for our spiritual existence. Too often we're trying to do it ourselves. We know we can't cause ourselves to be born again, but we think once we are, now it's up to us to live for Christ. It's up to me. And what Jesus is saying here, no. Your life depends on me and your relationship to me moment by moment by moment. And that's what we're reminded of in the Lord's Supper. It's a meal that sustains us, moment by moment, as we trust in Christ. The point that Jesus is making is that we need constantly to feed on Him for our spiritual life. Just like we eat and drink to sustain our physical bodies, we need to eat and drink of Him for our spiritual life. We have to depend on Christ and what He has done as the one sacrificed on the cross for our life, and we can only do that through faith. So, what's the benefit? Jesus has given us ideas about what the Lord's Supper is, but what's the benefit? Why does Christ call the body His, the bread His body, and the cup or the wine His blood? And why does Paul speak of? participation in the body and blood of Christ. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine symbolically sustain temporal life, his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. You need to eat to live physically. You need Christ to live spiritually, plain and simple. They say that we could last about 30 to 40 days without eating. I think some of us could last a wee bit longer, but I'm not sure, you know, I don't want to get too carried away with that. And they say that if you don't drink, you begin to die in three days. The point is you need to continue to eat and drink to sustain life. The same is true spiritually. You need to eat of Christ regularly. You need to feed on Him. And the Lord's Supper is a reminder of that. A reminder that He is our life. Without Him, we're dead. And He also wants to assure us that through these visible signs or outward signs and pledges, first that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in His true body and His blood as surely as we receive these elements with our mouth in remembrance of Him. And secondly, that his suffering and obedience are certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins ourselves. These are signs and pledges that what he's done is for us. And it's a guarantee of that. What's it mean to eat his body and drink his blood? First of all, to accept with a believing heart. As I've said again and again, faith is essential. Believe that the suffering and death of Christ have accomplished our salvation so that we have our sins forgiven. That's what it means to eat his blood, or eat his flesh and drink his blood. Secondly, it means to be united to him more and more by the Holy Spirit. Just as food becomes a part of us, as we eat of Christ, as we feed on him, we become more a part of him through faith. So, how does the Lord's Supper seal or sign these things that we share in Christ's sacrifice and gain all of the benefits that he has, his finished work has accomplished? Christ has commanded us to eat of this bread and drink of the cup in remembrance of him. And with that, he gives us two promises. First, as surely as we see these elements, as they come down the row, and you see them, and you touch them, then you can know that what Christ has done, He did for you. And secondly, as you taste them, and you realize this is going to become part of me, you know that as we feed on Christ by faith, we become part of Him, and He becomes part of us. What role does the Lord's Supper play in our daily lives? Most Christians I've talked to very, very little. And yet Christians get quite inventive on all kinds of ways to assure themselves of their salvation. and of Are they really a believer and they have all kinds of mechanisms? This is the way Christ has given us, to assure us that what he has done is ours. To assure us of a focusing not on ourselves, but on what he has done, his finished work. It is not what we do, but what Christ has already done. The Lord's Supper gives us that assurance. When you go forth from here tonight, you can say, wait a minute. I know that I partook of the Lord's Supper. I, I tasted that wine, that bread. I touched it. And so just as certainly as you know you did that, you can know that Jesus has died for you. That's the point of the Lord's Supper. And the gospel and the Lord's Supper belong together. Both are really saying the same thing. The gospel is an oral presentation that it's all what Jesus did. It's saying, here's the gospel, here's the good news. Jesus has died for your sins. In the Lord's Supper, it's a physical, tactile, symbolic presentation of the gospel. It's saying Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out for your salvation. Notice what's missing there. It's not what you do; it's what he did. It's the same as the gospel message, and they belong together. So, how do we observe the Lord's Supper? What do you do, and why do you do it? Just think over. Last time we had Lord's Supper, what did you do? I got real quiet, and the elements are passing down the roads. What, what was going through your mind? What were you doing? Why do you do that, and not something else? How are we to observe the Lord's Supper? Here we need to be very careful because there's very little in Scripture about how to observe the Lord's Supper. So I'm not giving you law here, okay? The primary imperative in observing the Lord's Supper is faith. You need to believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. It's focusing on what Jesus has done. Finished, completed. That's where your salvation is. That's where your life is. But that faith comes to expression in different ways. First of all, intellectually. What do you have to think about? Our focus should be completely away from ourselves and onto the finished work of Christ. Our thoughts should center on what He has objectively accomplished in space and time through His death. Thinking about the fact that He became our substitute. Offering Himself up on our behalf. Taking on Himself the penalty we deserve, dying in our place. And we need to think about the fact that His one sacrifice atoned once and for all, for all of my sin, past, present, and future, such that we can now come boldly into the presence of the Creator, coming to Him as our Father, who we know loves us because He's given us His Son, His only Son, to die in our place. Emotionally, how does our faith come to expression? Our hearts, I think, should be both overwhelmed at the horror of the fact that it was our sin which put Jesus on the cross. Not some vague theological concept of sin, but the thoughts, words, and actions that we do in willful rebellion against the Creator. My sin. Put Jesus on the cross, and that should crush us in wave after wave of sorrow. But our hearts should also explode in joy and thankfulness and worship at the thought that the sinless Son of God willingly died in my place, bearing the penalty I deserved, and lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father on my behalf, so that through faith in what He has done, The Father looks at me as though I had done all of that, that I had paid the debt I owed, that I lived a perfect life. That's what's symbolized in these elements. Jesus did it all. I don't do anything. I just receive it in faith. And then volitionally, what do you do? What could you do? Jesus has done it all. Ultimately, it's not about us, how we feel, or what we think, or what we do. Rather, the focus is solely on the grace of God revealed in the finished work of Christ. And it's laying hold of that by faith and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And thanks be to God that you've redeemed me. It's communing with Christ. It's feeding on him, an acknowledgement that he alone is our life. That's our focus, intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. And to conclude, I'd like to go back to the three categories of people that need to eat. You may come tonight and you think, I'm healthy spiritually. I'm, I'm okay. You need the Lord's Supper. You need to eat spiritually. That's what we're doing. You need to feed on Christ. Even though you're healthy, don't you enjoy a good meal? <laughs> As healthy Christians, you should enjoy a good meal to be reminded of the wonder of what Jesus has done for you. But they may come and say, well, I'm just so unworthy. I, I'm, I'm struggling with sin in my life. I can't, I can't do this. You know, I can't come to the Lord's Supper because you know, if you knew what was going on in my life, I, I can't. Why do you think Jesus went to the cross? He paid for that sin. He knows. He knows better than you do. So come, feed on him. Draw life from what he has done. Maybe you're working hard for the Lord in some ministry. You're in some spiritual battle. You really need the Lord's Supper. You need to focus on what Christ has done, that He has done it all, that He is the victor. So come. Come to the Lord's Supper. As a believer, you need this food. Come to the Lord's table in faith, believing that He has paid for all your sin and longs for you to fellowship with Him. Come believing that in Him and through what He alone has already done, you have eternal life. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we stand amazed at the wonder of the gospel, the wonder that You would send your Son to come and take our place and die for us, live a perfect life that we might be acceptable in your sight through him. We are so undeserving, and yet you've loved us and given yourself for us. We thank you. That's all we can do. Thank you in faith for all that you've done. Grant us that faith evermore, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas org Thanks for listening.